Hi everybody and welcome to the Junction Church Podcast. We pray that this message inspires and encourages you. If you would like to find out any more information about us, then please visit our website at www.thejunctionchurch.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, Turn with me, will you, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. Um, This morning we're continuing our More Than This series and I want to speak on something called Purposed for More. Purposed for More. Um, I want to speak about Matthew who wrote Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew is a significant figure in the Bible upon which we don't read much about. Um, We read about what he wrote but we don't know much about him. Matthew was a tax collector. Um, he was an extremely unpopular figure um, before he met Jesus. Um, and um, he was an extremely wealthy man. And, but he also happened to write um, an incredible book which kicks off the New Testament. So in terms of um, significance, Matthew would be right up there. Uh, but in terms of starting life, he would be right down there. <laughs> Someone who managed to traverse an incredible scale where he started from a nowhere position of hatred and rejection and ended up in a place of incredible ministry declaring the truth of Christ. Matthew's Gospel it is an incredible historical, historically accurate book which describes um, Jesus Christ as the Messiah. His... Um, his account of the gospel uses more quotes from the Old Testament than any of the other uh, gospel books. And it brings about this, this evidence, this proof that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the one who came to set his people free and to bring redemption to all mankind. And Matthew was simply a, um, was simply a tax collector um, who was collecting taxes sitting in his booth one day when Jesus walks past. And so we're going to read in Matthew chapter 9 and verse, chapter 9 and verse 9 through to verse 13 in the, we're going to do the New Living Translation, uh, which is, uh, we like the New Living Translation most of the time. New Living Translation, there are, for those of you who don't know, the the Bible is translated um, from uh, from the original text into, into English. And then what happens is, is English shifts and change. So we change the, the, the text so that it makes sense in today's language. A New Living Translation is, is, a, is an excellent new uh, translation that it expresses things in a very easy modern way. You don't have to read it and think poetically. Um, I was brought up on the King James Bible, uh, which is... Which I just couldn't get. I, even as a child, I was brought up with it. And I remember, I remember speaking to Cheryl's grandmother, who happened to be my Sunday school teacher. And uh, when I was a child, Cheryl's grandmother was my Sunday school teacher, and she brought me up on, on, um, on New Testament. I remember speaking as an adult. I was, by that time, we were reading a, a more modern English translation. She, was, she just couldn't understand why we couldn't stick with the King James Bible. And I'm going, but I don't understand the words that are in it. I don't, we don't use those words anymore. I don't even know what they mean. And uh, so, 
So, so as it's happened over the years, there's been many, many translations. And so we like the New Living Translation. Sometimes we go back to a translation which we feel gives, it, gives a verse a little bit more oomph. Sometimes when, when you translate the English, it's very, words, the English words are not perfect. And so sometimes you have to kind of find a word, the right word, to describe the truth of Jesus. But we're going to do Matthew's Gospel in the New Living today. In, in verse 9 it says this, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Don't you like that? You can imagine what kind of dinner that was. (laughs) But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call uh, not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And Matthew was a Jew who was amongst the most hated people there could possibly be. And the reason for that was he has made a decision to become a businessman in a mafia-style protection racket. (laughs) Basically, he is authorized uh, by, actually by the king, to collect taxes on the king's behalf to give to the Roman um, um, superpower. And there he is, and he's given right, but he can collect taxes. He has to collect the taxes that are due, but he's allowed to collect anything else on top for his own profit. And there's nothing that anybody else can do about it. He is basically a protection racket without the protection. And so he's not offering any services other than give me your money or you're in trouble. And so he's an incredibly wealthy businessman who has sought to isolate himself for the benefit of lining his own pockets. And he's he's sort of in a society, and you can understand, in a world where... Um, poverty would have been extremely real. They don't have a health system. They, there was no, if you were poor, you were poor. You became a slave, you would starve. You had to do something to find food, something to eat, something to do work. And if you had the capacity to get wealth, then, then it's quite possible you might make those kind of choices. And, but once given that opportunity, tax collectors were, by and large, corrupt people um, working for a corrupt system, a corrupt, corrupt government. And so you can imagine the kind of hatred that people felt towards them, probably even more than they would consider people like prostitutes, etc., who they would hang out with. The Bible, describes, the Bible describes tax collectors along with prostitutes and people that were considered the lowlifes of society. They were considered, the, the, as, as the, this translation calls them, the scum. That's a very modern word, isn't it? But that's basically what they're saying. They're just scum. They're nobodies. There's nothing. And Jesus comes up to Matthew, the scum of society, and says, follow me, be my disciple. An extraordinary, extraordinary event starts to take place. 
You see, when Jesus comes and meets with us, He puts a purpose in us that the world cannot see. See, I remember when I was a kid at school, I was known as Kevin I Forgot Upton. That's what the school teachers would call me. Kevin, I forgot. And because there would be Upton, where's your homework? I forgot. <laughs> where's your PE kit? Oh, I forgot. And uh, I, had, I had all sorts of other stories relating to how I forgot. I had all sorts of forgotten stories. I had a whole string of them, a stash. I had to remember which one I'd spoken to, which teacher. And, uh, <laughs> but the more they spoke that about me, the more that expectation came around me of what people said about me. So the society was beginning to develop a commentary on the life of Kevin Upton. But God had already determined a commentary and a description, a biography of a man that was called to serve God. They were in conflict with one another. And I want you to know that regardless of what has been said and written about your life, what has been declared, God has ordained a greater purpose for your life. He has ordained for you to walk in things that society and situations and circumstances has declared that you cannot walk in. You know, you may have even spoken those things yourself over your own life. It may be that you have walked your life and declared over your life that you can't do something. You begin to speak your own commentary based upon your own failure, the circumstances you've gone through, and by your own experience you've gone, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't go there. Matthew was a man who sat in a tax booth and he collected money He was hated by everyone. He had wealth, but he did not have friendship. He had had wealth, but he did not have the sense of value. He was contained to a small group of disreputable... It's a very difficult word to say. (laughs) Unlikable people. (laughs) He had a a small band of people, and because they were considered the lowlifes, there was this sense of sort of camaraderie amongst them, but it's also a sense of a victim to the kind of life they've chosen for themselves. And what happens is they begin to speak it over themselves. He saw no life or hope or opportunity because rejection hurts whether it's your fault or not. And that's, that's a fact. We, we, you know, we all feel and suffer rejection at some point. And really this message is about dealing with rejection. The rejection that we place upon ourselves. The feeling of rejection that we have from other people. Often I speak to people and the conversation goes like this. People are saying things about, I know they're thinking this about me. Which is extraordinary because I don't know anyone who's an accurate mind reader. Not really. But it's amazing how we feel like someone looked across the room and we think we know what they're thinking about us because we saw the way their eyes moved. I know you hate me. Now it may have been that they were just about to sneeze. It may have been that they saw you and suddenly remembered they'd forgotten something else. It may be that they didn't even see you. They looked right through you. 
And they're because they didn't see anyone. Their mind, their eyes were there, their body was there, but their brain was back home thinking about the cooker they hadn't switched off. <laughs> but in our brain, we create in ourselves a commentary of what we think is being said about us, beginning to confirm the rejection and the isolation and the, the minimization of what it is that we're able to do, can do and where we can go, and what we can affect within our lives. But God has got for you a message that He wants you to step away from the tax booth and be His disciple. Jesus comes to you and says, I'm speaking over you a different kind of destiny. I'm speaking over you a different kind of life. I'm speaking over you a different kind of call. You were not born for the minimization of life in today's world. You weren't born just to sit behind a desk. You weren't born just to to make a company wealthy. It's an honorable thing to work and to work well and to make your boss wealthy. I want you to know that. It's honorable to make your boss wealthy. Some people think to yourself, oh, you know, there's my boss. He's making all the money and I'm, I'm working hard and I'm making him rich. Well, that's because he's the boss and he managed to get the job to employ you. If you manage to get a job, if you create your own company or manage to get the boss, then you have that opportunity to get rich too. So it's honorable to make your boss rich, but that is not the limit of your call of life. You are not just constrained to do those things. And it may be that God's called you to be a more effective businessman. It may be God's called you to be a more effective um, in, your, in your workplace, more influential in your thinking. But in this, God has got something for you which is to do with the kingdom. And that is, He calls you. And He says, come to me, follow me, follow and be my disciple. You know, What happens is that when Jesus calls us, He calls us to follow Him even though we are not qualified. Matthew was not qualified to write the first book of the New Testament. Isn't it extraordinary that the man whose life is now recorded forever, the history of of Christ as Messiah because the four Gospels bring in attributes of Christ in different parts of the, the, the nature and the life of who Christ is and Matthew's Gospel is a Gospel committed to the attribute of Christ as Messiah that's its, that's its purpose and it brings historical and it brings the evidence of all the prophetic words that were spoken of Christ in the Old Testament and it brings confirmation of those prophecies and it comes through here is a man who's a tax collector He's a criminal. He's, a, he's, he's, he's the low life of society. He, he's a mafia type hitman. <laughs> he's a man who comes and knocks on your door in the middle of the night saying, Give me the money or we will rearrange your body. <laughs> <laughs> this is who he is, and Jesus looks at him and loves him. Jesus looks at him and sees, There's a man who can follow me. There's a man who can take a record of the life that I am living here. There's a man who can do something incredible for me. Matthew, come and be my disciple. And so Matthew is drawn out. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
verse 26 it says remember dear brothers remember dear brothers and sisters that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you instead God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise and he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful God chose things despised by the world things counted as nothing at all and used them to bring to nothing the world considers important as a result no one can ever boast in the presence of God you see this is a fact your qualification for your call is found in your calling not in your ability your qualification is found in your calling not your ability So I can't do this. Oh, that's okay. You just suddenly become qualified. God called you to do it. And God called Cheryl and I to ministry, to plant churches, not only in Scotland, but across Northern Europe to train up other pastors. I speak to people. I say, how long have you been pastoring? Oh, 19 years. I've been preaching the gospel regularly since I was 18. That's 30 years I've been preaching. And here I have been preaching the gospel for 30 years. And, and so you look at it and you think, wow, you know, must be qualified for the call. Look, this is my qualification for planning a church. I started a business making furniture. I made furniture, I sold furniture. I had a family. I went to church. I loved people. I went to church, I led a bit of worship. I know. Uh, <laughs> did a bit of youth, we did the crash, cleaned up after people, we just served. That was our qualification for planting churches. Are you real? That was our training. That was our training. Where was the qualification? The qualification was found in the core. See, I, I, I want you to understand, we were nobodies in a nowhere town, in a nothing place, called to make a significant difference I want you to know there is nothing significant about us. There is nothing significant about anybody. That's the reality. The reality is we've got to stop living with a syndrome thinking that everybody else has got something and I haven't. God calls those who are not wise to confound the wisdom of this world and say to them, look at this. See this person that you say is a nobody? I'm going to show you how amazing this nobody is. Because they're going to do something amazing for me. They're going to do something amazing for me. You've got to understand. If you say you're a nobody, oh my goodness. Suddenly, you can be a somebody. If you recognize how much of a nobody you really are, then you recognize the qualification for which you have come to serve God suddenly the purpose for which you can be you can fulfill your call is beginning to work through your life one of my great heroes uh, in life that um, the kind of historical heroes that you read I love to read historical figures people that have um, uh, that have inspired me I I was talking with Moses the other day on Hudson Taylor made a huge impact on me um, just before we uh, went into ministry training, and um, uh, Hudson Taylor was a, an, a, an evang- uh, a missionary that went to China, 
and uh, and in fact um, he he um, it was in fact it was on Brighton Beach where we did our training, uh, not on Brighton Beach, you know. We went to Brighton. We were in Brighton. <laughs> you know, and it was on Brighton Beach that Hudson Taylor was walking up and down, having started his missionary call in China. He'd been to China, had a hard time, hadn't got anyone saved. Came back from China, was walking along Brighton Beach, and suddenly this this revelation comes to him about reaching the Chinese people. And so he on that revelation, that understanding, he meets with God. He goes back. Uh, and he, he, in the, I can't remember what year it was now, he, he raised 3,000 people to reach China. 3,000 people. Do you know how many, how quickly he got 3,000 to go with him to China? One year. Do you know it takes six months to get to China by boat in that time? So he actually did it in six months. <laughs> he, went, he went from England to America and there, and he gathered, and he gathered, and he gathered, and he took with him, and he took 3,000 people, and he pushed them into China, and he saw an incredible move of God. Hudson Taylor, incredible man, who was just, who was rejected by every single missionary society in his time to go to China. Everyone rejected him, but he went. You've got to understand, here's another hero of mine, a man called Gypsy Smith. Anybody heard of Gypsy Smith? Gypsy Smith, he's not well known today. Um, perhaps, Jim, you're the only man who's heard of Gypsy Smith. Uh, I'm in good company. And uh, Gypsy Smith is a man well worth it. He's a fascinating story. He was born in 1860. He was actually born the year after um, uh, Smith Wigglesworth and died in the same year. And uh, Gypsy Smith was, guess what? He was a gypsy. All right, uh, there's a clue there. He wasn't just scruffy. It wasn't a nickname. Yeah, Scruffy Smith. All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read you something of the Gypsy Smith story, all right? Because he was a Romany gypsy, and he was born, he was born in a Romany tent in Epping Forest, right, in 1860. This is his story. Smith was born in a Romany tent in Epping Forest, six miles northeast of London. Today, the site is marked with a commemorative stone. Let me just move on. His father, Cornelius, and his mother, uh, Mary, provided a home that was happy. Um, Smith was a child when his mother died from smallpox. I'm just cutting through. I just cut and paste this off uh, Wikipedia so I can get the, get the story. Cornelius Smith, his father, was in and out of jail for various offences. There he heard the gospel from a prison chaplain. Later, he and his brothers were converted at a mission meeting. From 1873 on, the converted gypsies were involved in numerous evangelistic events. Age 16, Smith's conversion came as a result of a combination of factors. The witness of his father hearing um, Ira Sankey. Who's heard of Sankey hymns? Sankey hymns were the hymns that literally changed the, the, the um, British... Um, uh, they were the hymns of the day. They were the hill songs of the 18, uh, 1800s, the late 1800s of the 19th century. They were, they were literally the hill songs uh, of, of the day. And those hymns, and it was um, Iris Sankey, she, hearing Iris Sankey sing and visiting the home of John Bunyan. John Bunyan, uh, another um, great man of God in Bedford, all contributed. He taught himself to read and write and began to practice preaching. He could sing hymns to the people he met and was known as the singing gypsy boy. At a convention at the Christian Mission, later become known as the Salvation Army headquarters in London, William Booth noticed Gypsy and realized the potential of the young Smith. On the 25th of June, 1877, Smith accepted the invitation 
Remember, he's 17 years of age. Smith accepted the invitation of Booth to become an evangelist with and for the mission. And for six years, he served on street corners and mission halls. Smith served on several assignments and saw membership rise to hundreds and then a hundreds and then a thousand. By June 1882, great crowds were coming and the work was growing. His eight assignments with the Salvation Army had produced 23,000 decisions and his crowds uh, were anywhere up to 1,500 people. That's working for the Salvation Army. He preached for 70 years to crowds of many thousands seeing hundreds of thousands saved in his lifetime. He crossed the Atlantic on a boat 45 times doing missions between England and America. He was a man who could barely read. When he was preaching, he would read, he would get to a word he couldn't speak, he couldn't say, he would stop, he would say something, come back and start reading again the other side of the word because he couldn't read or write properly. He was just a gypsy, selling pegs and making baskets, going around from place to place. But William Booth came through and said, boy, there's a call of God upon your life. And suddenly a gypsy became qualified to, to birth a revival and seeing hundreds of thousands of people saved. I want to tell you, there is absolutely no reason why we cannot respond to the call of God to do something significant for Him. You know, what was it that he saw? William Booth just saw a man who was hungry for God. 17 years of age, he can barely read or write. He's only... His only inspiration are the songs that are being sung and he just wants to sing songs and he would love to just... He told the most extraordinary stories and out of those stories were birthed an incredible move of God that saw so many people saved. You see, he wasn't qualified, but he was called. And in that calling, a difference was made. And I I want you to understand, you see, Matthew... When Matthew was called, the calling changed him. I, I want you to understand, you see, see, when the calling is called, you can, it's not who you are before, it's who you are when you're called. You see, when God touches your life, He touches your life and you change. He changes you. I was 11 years of age. I was in a Baptist church, strict Baptist church. I was thinking, when Anna was singing, wasn't that just the most incredible worship? I was just crying. I, just, I was just caught up in the presence of God. And, and I, was, I was taken back to being 11 years of age, 1977. And I'm in a little Baptist church in the middle of the Sussex countryside. Literally, the, the, we, my dad would drive his transit van and the, the hedges on the road would, would brush against the van on both sides as we're driving to, to get to this chapel that was literally, it was just a chapel in a field. And that was it. There were no houses or anywhere. And you get to the chapel and there were four by four um, frame leaning against the walls to stop the wall of the chapel falling out. It could hold... A hundred people, but that wasn't safely. <laughs> we, you would get, you would get. It was a small hall, narrowed with a narrow aisle down the side, and you have seats 
wooden seats and you would just jam people in to the point where you'd be squeezing in. And I remember as a child coming into that meeting and hearing the gospel preached like I'd never heard it before, hearing the hope of Jesus Christ. And at 11 years of age, something dropped into my spirit and I changed. Something changed then. It wasn't, I wasn't changed before. I heard and I changed. I, I, I want you to understand that a lot of people feel that, you know, that they're basing their ability to do something for God based upon their history. But it's not on your history, it's based on your call. Because it's not from you, it's from God. And you've got to understand, when I was 11, it changed me. And then when I was 17, I was praying. Um, and in that prayer, I saw churches being planted across Europe. And at the age of 17, no one was planting churches then. They, it wasn't a church planting season. It, there were charismatic churches rising up, but they were being formed out of the denominational churches of the day. And what was happening was that God put this dream in my heart and I was changed again. Something got into me. From the age of 11 to 17, I went on this journey of finding God. And at 17, I realized what that really meant. And I began to find the purpose and the call for my life. I want you to understand, it's not about being a pastor or a preacher. It may be that some of you here are called into ministry. But most people are not called into ministry, the classic sense. But all of us are called to serve God in a significant way. We are all called for significance. Understand Matthew. He wasn't an apostle. We don't know anything else that he did. We have no idea. There's no, more hit, there's no more record of what Matthew did, except for the fact that he was with Jesus. He was one of the ones that went along with him. He was probably one of the 70 that Jesus sent out. He was quite likely, he was always there around in the background, but he wasn't called for ministry. He wasn't an apostle, a pastor, a teacher, or an evangelist. What he was, was a man who was called of God to do something significant and to record what was going on and declare the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. You've got to understand that there is something greater for your life, a greater purpose and a greater call. I want to finish this morning by just reminding you of a woman who was a nobody, hated, despised, who met with their saviour and changed a whole city. And this is the woman at the well in verse, and the woman at the well, Jesus is coming through Samaria and he comes to the well and he's thirsty and he's hungry and he sends his disciples off. He says, boys, go and get me some food. I want a pie and um, beef pie, not pork, and, uh, or lamb, I don't mind. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, want, um, I, want some, I want something to drink, uh, but just go off and I'll, I'll just sit here and wait. And while he's waiting, he comes, along comes a woman who's drawing water from the well and she's coming at this time because she's despised by everyone around her. She is a woman of disrepute. And so she comes along and Jesus starts to talk to her and she's amazed that he is talking to her and he begins to reveal to her 
her own life, and not only her own life, but the hope that she has in him, even though he has revealed to her her life. Her life, as far as she was concerned, was a secret to this man. But Jesus reveals her life, but he doesn't judge it. He doesn't crush her for it. He just shows her what her life is. He reveals to her her sin. Sin is not a popular word today. We, we, we want to not talk about sin, but we're all sinners. And he reveals to this woman what her sin is. But instead of destroying her, he leads her gently into a place of revelation. And it comes to, we get to John chapter 4, verse 27. It says this, Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask. I love it, did you? What do you, <laughs> to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming in from the village to see him. Now this is the point. She came with her water pot. What was the epitome of her shame? Was it the five husbands that she had or the man she was living with was which was not her husband that wasn't the epitome of her shame the epitome of her shame was her water pot because her water pot reminded her that she couldn't do life like everybody else all the other women would go in the morning to gather water and gather together but she when she picked up her water pot it spoke of rejection it spoke it spoke of a, a, a society that said you're not good enough a society that they were part of, they were part of creating, were part of responsible for. We're all responsible, actually, to a degree of what goes on. We're not responsible for an individual's mistakes, but we're responsible for the society that we live in. That's why we have to change it, amen? And here is a woman who's being judged, so she carries her water pot, which is the epitome of everything that shows how much she is rejected. And she meets with Christ who reveals to her that she can drink from the living waters of life rather than having to draw water every day and just feel the rejection of normal life. She can drink from the Savior who can heal her. And when she turns around to go back, she leaves behind a precious possession. This water pot, she just leaves it behind. It's important to her. You gather, go to the well to get water. Water is a critical point of life. And she leaves it behind because she has to go and tell everyone of what has happened to her, that she's met with a Savior. And it says here in verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. You see, this woman left behind who she was. Matthew left behind who he was. He left behind. He was a tax collector and he walked away from the, from the dishonesty of his life. Here was a woman who was caught up in all these, uh, probably an addiction of relationships, an addiction 
of, of, of a promiscuous lifestyle, caught up in this trap of living, and no, no capacity, no space to break out of it, no opportunity or hope. And Jesus puts a call on her, and her life is changed instantly, and in that moment. And in that moment, she comes from being the woman who is hated and rejected, to the woman who is celebrated as the one who brought a message of hope to a city. That is the amazing gospel that we have. And I want you to know, we have been purposed for more. It doesn't matter where we have come from. It doesn't matter what people say about you. It doesn't matter what you say about yourself. There is a purpose for your life found in God when He called you by your name. He called you to come to Him. He called you to give your life to Him. He called you and spoke out your name. He says, come to me. Give your life to me. And that's when the call started to drip into your heart and you started to change. And I want you to know you cannot make a list of your failures and say to God, I can't because of this. You can't hold up a list and justify before God why you cannot serve Him, why you cannot walk away from Him. You can't hold up the list of your failures. You can't hold up the list of your hurts. You cannot hold up the list of your disappointments because they are all irrelevant. Because that is not the point. Jesus is saying, I'm not, I'm not even going there. What I'm saying to you is this. Follow me. And I will make you my disciple. I will show you how to live life and live it to its full. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or you'd like to find out contact information or service times, then don't forget to visit our website, www.junctionchurch.com. God bless.